Good morning, church. If you would turn to Romans 4, and as you're turning there, I just want to, um, I really just want to continue on with the, with the encouragement that we've already received from Jessica and also as Joe spoken into it. And I really want to encourage you guys this morning and really speak on what the heart of what Jessica and Joe is saying and the heart of what the scripture in Romans is going to say today is that we do have a platform. We do have a platform for the gospel. And each and every one of you, no matter how big or small you think it is, God has trusted you with it. He's trusted you with that platform, and you need to share the gospel, whether it's in school or work, at home, with your own family. It doesn't matter how big you think it is. It's big enough that God trusted you with it. And so I want to encourage you this morning to share that, to take the platform that God has given you in front of your peers, in front of your coworkers, in front of the students that you're around, and share the gospel and share the gospel truth. And that's what we're seeing here with Paul this morning. He's continuing that. He really wants to hammer home the truth of righteousness. There's so many false things that the Jewish people have put, false views and false ways of what justification looks like. And Paul wants to settle that argument. And he wants to let them know that true righteousness is found only in Christ and the work that Christ did. And so as we're thinking through that, last, for the last three weeks, I think Paul has been very clear on his progression through the, letter of Rome, I mean, through the letter to the Roman church about what this looks like and that we should put this into practice, that we should put it into practice in our everyday life as we meet people, as we love people, that not only do we do it by our words, but we do it by our actions. And so Paul is so clear. Two weeks ago, Paul introduced to us the truth about righteousness and he says this he says that it's not of yourself it's not of yourself remove any thought of that that your righteousness that you standing right before God and justified is apart from anything that you can do and achieve it's only by the grace given to you freely that we can stand before a holy God and stand there justified and he also goes on and he says it's apart from works you can't work your way into a heaven you can't do it And he says, it is shown to us by the law and the prophets that God has shown us this in his word, in his scripture, through his people. God has spoken to us the truth about justification. It's not something we've made up. It's written in his law. And it's only required by faith. We can only acquire it by our faith in what he has done, in the truth of what he is doing. And so, here's the beauty of it. It's available to all. It's available to all. That's why it's important that our platform speaks the gospel. That's why it's important. You and I don't know who, and we don't need to try to figure it out. We just need to share the gospel in love and in truth. And then he goes on to say it is given to them freely. It is freely given them by grace and grace alone. And he says it was paid for. Righteousness was paid for by an atoning sacrifice, that it was a public display of God's humility to take on our sin on our behalf so that we could be the glory of God. It was public. It wasn't in secret. He did this so the world could see. And then it was revealed by the cross. It was revealed by the cross that when the world, when the Roman Empire thought that Christ was defeated, he really brought victory to our lives. He brought victory to the believers, to the Christians. And so then, 
we moved on to last week where Joe taught us about this. And, and see the flow. See how Paul is laying out the truth of righteousness. And then he goes on to say this. Because it's not about who you are, what you've done, or what you've acquired, guess what? You have no room to boast. You have no room to boast in that. Listen in verse 27, chapter 3. It says, where then is boasting? It says, it is excluded. By what kind of law or works? But by no, uh, no, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So there is no room. It is excluded. There is no room for you to boast. We must have faith and believe that the power of the cross has saved us. It has reconciled us to God the Father. It has defeated death. And so there is no room for self-motives. That in our heart, that when our heart is changed, we no longer promote self. That no longer does the world look at Jason or you, but they see Christ in me. Galatians 2.20 should come alive to this world. They should see me living out Christ. So there is no room for me to boast. I can't boast or brag about what I did on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night or in home groups. But I can only boast about what Christ is doing in my life, in and through my life, so they may see him and not me. And so I love it. It says this, and instead of our heart boasting about Christ alone, our heart to display the glory of God. And I've already somewhat quoted this verse, but listen to me. It says two, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. It says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is our role in this. Our role is not to somehow achieve or obtain salvation. Our role is to take that gift freely and accept it in truth and believe it and submit to it and obey it so that we become the glory of God. That we can stand righteous in front of this world, not because of what I've done, but what Christ has done in me. And so our pride must turn into humility. It must turn into humility. And the power of God will change our hearts and it will lead us to a life that upholds this new life. That we're done with the old life. And we uphold this new life that God has given us. And turn to Romans 6, where you're in Romans, and I want to read this with me. And it talks about this new life. In Romans 6, 1, it says, What shall I say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through the baptism of death so that, so that as Christ has raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. For he died, for he who has died is freed from sin. And so our tendency to boast in self and to abuse grace is being sanctified as we continue to pursue Christ. As we continue to pursue Christ, we no longer want ourself to be seen but we want Christ to be seen. 
And that's tough. It's not easy. All of us wrestle with that. To some degree, we all wrestle with our self-pride. But that's why we continue to abide in Christ. We tend to abide in His Word and seek out His truth and obey Him. And then we continue to increase and He will continue to, uh, we will continue to decrease and He will continue to increase in our life. And so we must pursue this new life. And so Paul, he finishes this argument and he continues into chapter 4 and he points to the life of Abraham. And he points to the life of Abraham for a lot of reasons. He dedicates this whole chapter, chapter 4. And so don't lose me here. Don't, don't, don't uh, get caught up in this reputation of we're justified by faith. I know that. I understand that. Because what Paul is doing here is he's really kind of defending, he's defending our faith, the truth of righteousness and what it should look like when it changes our heart. And so as he continues in chapter 4, I think there's many reasons why he uses the life of Abraham. One of them is this. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul even wrote the letter. Before he even wrote this letter demonstrating the principles of salvation and uh, by faith alone, he wrote this. So there's one reason why. And the second reason here, I think it's because, because he's a human being. <laughs> and what do you mean by that? Because up to this point, really, Paul, he's given abstract ideas about salvation. And now, finally, he uses a human being. And he says, look at Abraham. Let's look at the life of Abraham when it comes to justification. And so he takes Abraham's life and he speaks truth about that. And then I think the last part is that he is, Abraham is really the supreme example of a godly and righteous man used in the Old Testament, especially in Judaism. When they looked to a man who stood right before God, they looked to the life of Abraham. And Paul wants to take that and he wants to use that. And so they believe that God, that the Jews believe that God chose Abraham because he was a righteous man and that he was the father of Israel. But like many people today, many cults, many people, many false religions, we've taken scripture and we've twisted it. And we've done that. We've twisted to fit this preconceived thought that we have about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And we fit it into our own box so that it feels good to me and you. And it feels right. And so I feel good about showing up on every Sunday but not doing anything else. Or I feel good about uh, giving to a charity. And so we fit that scripture, the word of God, to, to a mold that makes me feel good. And that's wrong. And so today, Paul takes the scripture and he, and he clarifies it for us. And not only for us, for the Jews. And I hope that in this, as we look through this, if you're a believer, there's two things happen. If you're a believer, I hope that you heed to this and that we look to the word and that we feed people the truth of the word and not our own preconceived thoughts. If you're not a believer, I hope you understand what Paul's trying to do in love. I hope you understand that he's saying, God loves you so much that you don't have to work out your salvation. That Christ did it for you. That you need to trust that his sacrifice, that his atonement on the cross was good enough. That it's good enough. And so, here's an example from Habakkuk 2.4. And it's often rendered, it says this, it says that the just shall live by his faithfulness rather than by his faith. And so when they looked at the scripture, it was, it was often misinterpreted and they didn't really understand that faithfulness is being a fruit of your faith. And so when the Jews saw this, they thought, well, I need to be faithful to work, 
to the works that will bring me salvation instead of saying, I need to have faith and that will produce a faithfulness. We understand that? This is the misconception that the Jews had. They looked at Abraham's life and they said, man, he's really working out his salvation. He's doing it himself. He's obtaining the salvation. And really it's because of his faith. It's because of his faith and obedience in God that he trusted in God that he was faithful. There's a big difference. We can't miss that. Can't miss it. It's the eternal difference, right? We want to fall more in love with God himself, and that will produce a faithfulness, a faithful obedience to his word. And so we can't misinterpret that. We did the same thing, or the Jews did the same things in Genesis 15, 6, and many other examples throughout Scripture as they looked at faithfulness more than they looked at faith. And so not only Judaism, but all mankind, which Paul has clearly revealed to us in chapter 3 of Romans, all of mankind is doing the same thing. They're taking it and they're fitting it into their life and they're misinterpreting it. And so we, we are a prideful people who struggle with humility. We do. I don't think I'm the only one, but I'll admit it. It's hard to remove the pride of self and humble ourselves before a king and humble our will and our life and our resources and everything towards his feet. It's hard to do, but we must break through that pride. And so now, if you will, turn to chapter 4, and we're going to work through this. And if you would read, it says, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, What then shall we say, Abraham, our forefathers, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credited righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray, uh, just as Ian has, Father, that, that, our, that our hearts are opened for the Spirit of God to move within us, to bring clarity, not confusion, Father. Father, I pray that we remove all distractions. And Father, as many of us have probably read this passage or read in Romans, Father, I pray that you open our minds to hear your truths. And if there are any preconceived thoughts, Father, I pray that you either confirm them or you convict them, that we change to be more like you, or that you confirm them in our hearts so that we can celebrate them in our life so that the world may see our joy and our peace and our hope found only in you. Father, we thank you for Paul and his faithfulness to Um, teach us through your spirit the truth about righteousness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. And so now Paul's argument in this passage, it's really, it's broke down into four stages. And so as we work through this, think about this. Now what scholars would say is that this passage is actually a commentary on verse 27 and 28 in chapter 3. 
And so Paul's taking that and he's going to defend that and he's going to explain why Paul says it's very important for us to not boast in ourselves, but to boast in Christ. And in verse 27, he says it's excluded. That is no more. And he goes on in verse 28 says, For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so for the next eight verses in chapter 4, he will def- he'll defend this statement. And how will he defend it? He will show this. There's four things. He will show that Abraham is no exception. Abraham is no exception. You and I are no exception to the rule. It's through justification only by faith. And then he will show us that there's evidence in the Scripture. He's going to lay out the Scripture and say, look at Abraham's life. I'm not making this up. I want to give you proof. And the proof is straight from the Word of God. It's from the Scripture. And then he will show us that the reckoning of Abraham's faith or the credit of his faith, he's going to show us why his faith was credited. And then last, he's going to show us the sovereign character of God's reckoning of why he has credited us. And so as we move through this, think of this in the back of your head. I mean, put this in the back of your mind. And we'll pick up in verse 1. In verse 1 through 2 is this. It says, Abraham is no exception. So it says, then, what shall we say to Abraham, our forefathers, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so Paul opens this next section of his defense against the works of the law with a rhetorical question. And he says, this is, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefathers, according to the flesh, is found? And so he attaches this according to the flesh because it links us to the physical human contribution of justification by works. He's saying that, no, obviously it's not. It's not by what we can do. It's not by our flesh. It's not that we can obtain it. But he is establishing for us that we are limited, that we have limitations when it comes to our justification. And he, continue, and he confirms that by saying back in verse 3, he says that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works, that we cannot boast in this. And so there is no exception. Abraham is not, exce- he, he is not above this rule. He can only be justified by faith. And so when we look at verse 2, he confirms this. Says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying to his readers, to the Jews, to the Gentiles? What is he saying to us? He's saying if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God who satisfied the law perfectly and completely in his son Jesus Christ. He satisfied the law. Abraham didn't do that. You and I can't do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so the but not before God at the end, the tag there where he says but not before God, it rejects the logic stated in this conditional sentence. He rejects what he's saying. When we put put God's viewpoint and we consider that, all that God has done, all that God has sacrificed for humanity to be made whole through his son, when we put that in perspective, you and I and Abraham... There's no room for boasting. There's no room. We cannot boast about what we can achieve when we look at all that God has done for us. And the sacrifice of his son, the way he suffered, the way he laid down his life for you and I, does not compare to anything that we can achieve on our own. And so he's putting it in perspective here. He's saying he could boast, 
but not before God, not before what God has done. Kind of shrinks us, right? I hope it does. It shrinks me. So we have to put that in perspective. What has God done? And so now Paul explains this. He explains this, this tag here, but not before God, using what? Scripture. I love it. Using Scripture. Look at verse 3. He says this, For what does the Scripture say? Wow. I think a lot of us need to stop there. I know that when I was young in my faith, I wanted to tell them what I thought Scripture said and not what Scripture really says. And I think this is a lesson for all of us. I think it's a lesson for all of us because there's so much, there's so much false truth that is circulating around the world that we need to speak the real truth. And I think this is what Paul's trying to say. He's saying, I've been trying to go in circles and to explain to you how you can't achieve it, how you're not good enough, how you cannot obtain the law on your own. And now I'm going to show you in the Word of God because it's the only way to show you. And so he says, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say about the man that you uphold? What does it say? And look what it says in verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous, as righteousness. Not only did Paul tell them that no one is righteous apart from God, righteous, apart from God's righteousness in Jesus Christ, but Abraham, in Scripture, proves this is true. Abraham proves it's true. And so it says, for what does Scripture say? And in Genesis, he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. Some says it's reckoning. It's the same thing. It's this idea of that God has calculated um, your worth and it, it's not worth that much. And so because you've had faith in what he's done, he's given it to you. He's credited your account on behalf of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. He's credited that to you. And so this is the idea there. And so let's just take a quick second and look at Abraham's life. Because a lot of times we can quote that. We can say, well, yeah, Abraham was righteous. But let's look at why he was righteous, how he was faithful, why he believed. And so Genesis 12, you don't have to turn there. Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, it says this. The Lord said to Abraham, now think about this. Think in terms if he said this to you. He said, go therefore from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house and to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God just made a sovereign and unconditional promise to Abraham. And how does he respond? How does he respond with no guarantee but God's word? He left everything. He left his business. He left his family. He left uh, the, the, um, his friends, his relatives. He left his, his security and what he had and, and what he has built in his community, in his region, his nation. He left it all. He abandoned the temporal securities of this world to follow after God. Wow. How would we respond? How would we respond if God asked that of us? What would it look like? Would we have to weigh it? 
where we hold on to some curities. We say, God, you couldn't possibly call me for my family. And so Abraham left it all, and he left it by faith. He believed God's word was true. That's the only way you can abandon your family or leave your family behind. At least for me, when I start to think of my life, without the promises and the truth of God's word, there's nothing that's going to pull me from my family. There's nothing that's going to make me take that, uh, that leap of faith. But God's word is true. And Abraham, he abandoned it all. And it says it was credited to him as righteous. It was credited to him as righteous. And so the reckoning or the crediting that was not achieved by work-based performance, but by belief, the faith that God's promise is true and that is focused on both the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's just not a New Testament thing. It's new and old. It's all of Scripture. It's all of everything. It's based and built upon faith in God's Word and in His truths. And so in chapter 4, we read this. He continues and he says, Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so as we look at verse 4 and 5 and see these two examples of reckoning, one is, is, is due. It's due to him. It's due to someone because of their wage. The other one is gifted to him. And so we see this due and this gifting. And verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. And if a person works, the pay he or she receives in return is a matter of obligation. It's fair compensation. You're the employee and the employer. He owes the worker for what he has put into it. And the worker's wage is, is earned, and he should be paid for it. But it's not given to him freely. He worked for it. And this is Paul's trying to make this clear distinction. He says, since, since work means reward given by obligation, the reward of righteousness must be dependent on what? It's dependent on God. It's dependent on who he is. And so the worker in verse 4, he is due. He's due a wage. And guess what his wage is? His wage is death. And it's death to this world and to its desires. And guess what? A person who lives for this world and lives for this diet, they can live a happy life. They can have everything this world offers. And they can seek and pursue that. But in the end, they have death. They don't have true life. They don't have joy and peace and eternity. And so don't be fooled by those who look happy. Because if they don't have Christ, they're working for a means of an end. And that end is death. That end is separation from Christ. And so he is due. The one who works, they're due this world. And they can have everything in it. But in the end, they have nothing. And so this is the contrast. And so Paul puts in this word here, he says, but. So here's the transition. He says, but. The one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now Paul is not promoting laziness here. He's not promoting laziness or uh, because I think if, if we've read any, anything about Paul, if you know anything about who Paul is, 
He wasn't lazy. He was not lazy. He pursued the gospel in a way that he was stoned, that he was left to die, that he was imprisoned. And so what he's doing is he's not promoting laziness. He's not saying just lay back and say, God, come save me. He's not promoting that. Matter of fact, Calvin says this. He says, Paul is the last theologian who would back a complacent Christian unconcerned with the active putting into practice of one's faith. Paul would not back that. He would not back you not living out your faith. So it's not about promoting a laziness here. But rather, what Paul had in mind is that in light of the contrast of one who works for his wages, there's a person who does not depend on their works when standing before God. That's the difference. I'm not depending on what I have done so that when I stand before God, the judgment cast on me will be based on what I have done. I don't want to do that. I want to stand before God based on what Christ has already done. That's the difference. Because if you stand before God and say, I've done this, what do I deserve? You deserve death. And that's the reality. And that's the harsh truth. But if you stand before God and say, I've trusted in your son, I've trusted in his complete work of the cross, and the only reason that I can even produce any fruit is because of what he has done in my life, then you will stand glorified. You will stand with him in eternity forever. That's the difference. May our faith compel works in us and not allow us to build a kingdom around what we've already done because God will reject that. He will reject it. And so Abraham, the reckoning of Abraham's faith, the credit of his faith was based on his obedience to the word of God, the truth of God's commands, not on what he has done. So church, quit, quit trying to work for a wage that you cannot earn. Quit trying to work for it and trust in Christ that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again, that you are the beneficiaries of the supreme act of mercy and grace. You are the beneficiaries. And then look at verse 6 through 8. This is just God's beautiful, sovereign character of those who believe, those who've credited righteousness. And, and he says this, just as David speaks of the blessing of man to whom God credit righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so now Paul, in the middle of using Judaism's primary figure, Abraham, Paul, knowing this, uses a secondary figure because he knew that they upheld the writings and the law and the prophets. And so he uses David. And he brings in this quote from Psalms 32. And Paul writes, and he says, David also speaks of the blessing on the man who God credited righteousness apart from works. He continues to pound this home. It's not only Abraham's life that we're looking at, it's David too. Look at David. David was credited righteousness apart from works. He uses a scripture again. And he confirms what God is trying to say. He confirms God crediting mankind. And he speaks of these blessings to those who have true faith. 
Here's the blessing. Don't get caught up in the health and wealth, prosperity. All right? If you believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich or whatever. You're going to be healthy. Don't get caught up in that. Get caught up in this. This is what should break your heart. This is what should humble your heart. This is what should bring you joy and peace and hope. Listen to what he says. Blessed are those who lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed are those who, whose works done apart from the faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who, who aren't striving to achieve something through their own works. He said, blessed are those for they have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered it has been covered by the atoning sacrifice. That's what we're about to partake in. That's what we're about to remember and reflect on, that God covered your sins. That is the blessing, amen? It's not what we get. It's what's been given to us already. And so he continues and he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is God's sovereign reckoning. That he has credited sinful man as right before God. He has credited us right before God because of the greatest single act that humanity has known in man, and that is the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the hill of Calvary. Abraham was justified only by faith. David was justified only by faith. We are justified only by faith. Everyone who believes is justified only by faith. It's only by faith that we can stand before a holy God and He views us as right. It's only by faith. And so sinners, a sinner's faithful uh, faith is graciously accepted by God and counted for Him as righteous for the sake of Christ. And so count your blessings. Count them with an eternal perspective. And God will bless you here on earth. We're not saying that. We're not a church that rejects uh, a, a temporal blessing here on earth. But we cannot look to that. We can't look to that. We can't hold our faith and build our faith upon what we may or may not receive. We put our faith in what God has done and he defeated death on the cross. So let's put our faith in that. And so in conclusion, as we think about this message, and there's two ways that I kind of challenge you to think about it. There's two ways as a believer and as a non-believer. As a believer, take this and look at Abraham's life. And when you talk to people who don't know the gospel, when you use your platform, let them know that there is no exception that the playing field has been labeled. And it says back in, I think it was 23 or 24, it says there's no distinction. There's no distinction in the gospel. Abraham, David, no one. The playing field is labeled. There's no exception for my boasting. It's only found in Christ. And so use that when you tell the world. Show them evidence in Scripture. Show them it's not your own thoughts, that you've made up something, that you've dreamt something about this God that exists but prove to them His love and His mercy and His grace in Scripture. You can't go wrong. And then show them that it was because of the belief that you had, that Abraham had, that your faith, that it, that it is a proof of the way you live your life. That's a good thing to do. 
we show the world by word and by action, right? By the words of the gospel, by the truth of scripture, and by it being lived out in the actions of us to the world. We can't speak this and not look like it. Because it's just mere acknowledgement of who God is. And anyone can do that. But until it is lived out in our life, till it is a proof of who we are, the world will never know it. And so use that. And then also hold true, believers, hold true to the blessings. God has covered your sin. He accounted you as righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what you have done. And those who, the second part of that, those who don't believe, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. No one is better than anyone else. God has lavished his love upon all of creation. All of creation. And if you respond to his love and mercy and faith, he will cover your sins for all of time. There is no work you can do to produce the salvation. It is only what he has done in Christ Jesus. And so there's two of us. There's two ways. And so I pray that God uses you, and you pray now that if you are a believer, that God will use you to be an example to the world that is through justification by faith alone and nothing else. And if you don't know Christ, I pray that God, that the Spirit of God will move in your heart and that you will realize it doesn't matter how good you look to this world. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's not enough. It's only by what Christ has done. Let me pray. Father, God, we thank you that, um, that you continue to bring new light to our eyes about justification, the truth of justification. God, we know that it is a work that only Christ could achieve. And Father, I thank you that, uh, that he achieved it, Father, and that he did it perfectly. And that I have no part to play that I cannot achieve it through what I have done or what I think I can do, Father. I thank you that Jesus Christ completed the work, that he satisfied the wrath of God, and that when he laid down his life, that I would benefit from that in a way that would bring glory to your name, not my own, but your name. Father, we thank you for the example in Scripture that you've given us how Paul himself used Scripture to combat the false religiosity of today and of his day. And that how we have built this false preconceptions about salvation. And Father, that Paul had just wrecked that. He wrecked all that thought. And we, so we thank you that he uh, used your word to prove to all of mankind through the life of Abraham and David that is only by faith that we can respond and stand right before a holy God. Father, we love you. Spirit, move in our hearts. Convict us where our thoughts have been wrong. And then, Father, allow us to celebrate with the new truth that you have given us new truths about righteousness and faithful living, God. It's in your son's name we pray.